open up Mark chapter 14. There's an outline there with a bit of a structure for where we're going. And while we sort of prepare our um, practical things around us, let's pray that God might also prepare our hearts. Heavenly Father, as we come to consider this wondrous night before Jesus died, this dreadful night when he was betrayed by one closest to him, help us to come so close that in a sense we are in the room well as well, listening to Jesus' words, but remind us of the glory and wonder of being on this side of the cross and resurrection, that as we listen to Jesus, we know that he lives today, he has died for our sins, and he reigns as our Lord. Amen. The king must die. You can imagine those religious leaders muttering and planning and scheming. The king must die. The pretend king must die. If this Jesus of Nazareth is claiming to be king of the Jews, we must destroy him and we must disperse his band of followers. He's too popular. He's undermining the temple. He's claiming to be the son of God. The people receive him as king. That's the worst part. And so we have to eliminate him. The king must die. If you have been with us in recent weeks here at St Andrews, you'll know that the religious leaders were on the attack. They wanted Jesus dead, but they'd been unable to grab him and trap him publicly because Jesus was so popular with the crowds. So chapter 14 verse 1 sums it up perfectly. They were looking for some sly way to arrest and kill Jesus. In recognition of Jesus' popularity, their one piece of wisdom is this. We shouldn't kill him during the Passover. Otherwise, the people will riot. The Passover was a yearly festival where the Israelites remembered God's rescue of the Jewish nation out of Egypt. God had sent an angel to pass over the land of Egypt and to kill the firstborn son in every household. But the Israelite families were instructed to kill a newborn perfect lamb and to smear the blood on the doorway and wherever the blood was smeared, the angel would pass over that family and keep everybody safe. And on that very night, the Egyptians allowed the Israelites to go free. Every year after, the Israelites remembered the Passover. It was, in some ways, a somber reflection like our Anzac Day but it was also filled with nationalistic zeal, like an Australia Day or a New Year's Eve. And this looming feast, two days away, has provided the backdrop to the rest of Jesus' life. So we begin chapter 14. The first note there is that feast is two days away and that marker will be very important. The scene is set, the king must die, but the leaders are determined not to kill him during the Passover celebration. Meanwhile, Mark takes us outside of the city. So verses 1 and 2 set the scene. Then we go outside of the city to this tiny town called Bethany, where Jesus has been staying for this week. And we go into the house of Simon the leper. Now possibly here's a man that Jesus has healed. He couldn't be a leper anymore, otherwise he wouldn't have people around to dinner. Um, He's there hosting though this dinner party, and then a woman comes in carrying a very expensive alabaster jar of perfume. Mark doesn't tell us who the woman is, but in John's Gospel, where we get the same story, the woman is named as Mary, the sister of Lazarus, the one whom Jesus brought back from the dead. Mary comes in, 
She approaches Jesus, breaks the jar and pours the jar over his head. Anointing important people at feasts was pretty common, but it's the extravagant expense of the perfume that gets the attention of the dinner party. The value is more than a a year's wage. In Australia, let's say roughly $80,000 of perfume dripping down Jesus' forehead. It looks so wasteful. And it causes not only muttering under the breath, why is she wasting it, but some openly and harshly rebuke her to her face as well for being so wasteful. The complaint looks pretty righteous. Surely the money should go to the needy. What good is it being done poured on Jesus' head? On the surface, it looks like a good, righteous question, but there's much more to it. Here's a great tip for studying any of the gospel stories. It always pays to look at the same story told by other gospels as well. And so here's a bit of information that John gives us that Mark leaves out. I'll read it from John chapter 12. But one of the disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was later to betray him, objected. Why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? Looks like a good question. It was worth a year's wages, but... He did not say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. As the keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put in it. That's really where the question is coming from. And Jesus' response to Judas and the others shows how uh, badly mistaken they were. Chapter 14, verse 6, leave her alone. Quite strong words. What the woman did, in fact, was beautiful. Beautiful for at least two reasons. First, it revealed something about her heart. What was deemed wasteful was really an outpouring of thanksgiving and love and honour and respect. Jesus had done so much for this woman, bringing her dead brother back to life. And so without fear of embarrassment, she lavishly expressed her thanks to Christ. But not only is this an act of thanksgiving, it's also a symbol that will point ahead to Jesus' death. Uh, Jesus makes this point, verse 8. She poured perfume on my body beforehand to prepare for my burial. And this is where the real beauty of the act lies. Jesus has spoken about his death at least three times in the story so far. This is the fourth time. Jesus now focuses in on the burial. Jesus' impending death and subsequent burial has cast a long shadow over Mark's story. And a very dark shadow over the last week of Jesus' life. And even in this show of honour, respect, Jesus uses even that to remind people what will happen to him by the end of the week. Oil poured on his head is at once a beautiful anointing and a dreadful foretaste of his body laid in the ground. Jesus' words in verse 9 link the stories together, Jesus' story and the woman's story. Jesus says, wherever from now on the gospel is preached, that is, wherever the events of Jesus' death and what they mean is preached, her story will be remembered too. Jesus' death achieves the salvation and her story shows us the right response to Christ. And so these stories now will be interwoven forevermore. And the fact we're talking about it today even validates Jesus' words in the home of Simon the leper. I think Mary's story there prompts us to ask the question, how can you also foster extravagant thanks? 
to Jesus, the one who understands the sinfulness of sin and the mercy of Christ in dying will never think anything is too good or too costly to give to Christ. She treasured Christ and she allowed it to be poured out. Now, I'm not talking about big, large demonstrations of extravagance for everyone to see, big, large sums of money given to make a big, uh, draw a big attention to you. See, it's these dollars and labours that are given flowing from loving Christ that are the true sign of whether this is in thanks to Christ. It's the person who asks in the Psalm of 116, in the words of a Psalm 116, what can I give to the Lord for all his benefits to me? And this woman did, in Jesus' words, what she could. She gave what she could. And that's what Jesus is asking of us too. That's the response from us, to give what we can in response of thanks to him. Not more than what we can And not less saying, well, I gave as much as I could, but give what we can in a response of thanks and lavish outpouring to him. Well, there's that beautiful picture, but the tone very, very quickly changes into verse 10. We move into the next scene. We go now to the heart of Judas Iscariot. Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, went to the chief priests to betray Jesus to them. Naturally, they were delighted to hear of this and promised to give him money. So Judas watched from here on in the rest of the week for an opportunity to hand Jesus over. Here Judas played right into the leader's hands and their desire to find a sly way to kill Jesus. Remember, they weren't able to touch Jesus during the day because of the crowds. He was so popular. Perhaps a nighttime ambush or a nighttime arrest was on, but where does Jesus go at night? He's not staying in the city of Jerusalem, he's staying outside the city. But where does he go? Who is around? How can we find him at night? Maybe that's the sort of information that Judas could uh, could provide. And so Judas waited, and the religious leaders waited. The big question from this little section here is, why does Judas do it? Why does Judas betray Jesus? There's been all sorts of theories thrown up through the years. One common theory is that by now in the story, Judas is a bit disillusioned with Jesus. He joined into this band of um, a king, a Christ, but Jesus is not taking on the Romans, so he's a bit disillusioned. That theory is supported nowhere in the scriptures, although you can sort of maybe logically piece it together. It's just not in the Bible. The one common thread that is in every account of Judas is the theme of money. That is the one common thread. You already heard from John's Gospel, Judas was a thief and he would steal from the common pot. In Matthew's version of Judas, we're told that he exchanges Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. Mark is just a bit more economical with the story. They were delighted to hear this and promised to give him money. That's all we hear. Could it be that simple? Of course it could that Judas is motivated by greed. And where Mary had given a year's wages to lavish thanks on Jesus, Judas had traded Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. Where Mary had treasured Christ, Judas had traded Christ. 
There was a story a couple of years ago about a garage sale in the US. And this picture here, it might not look like much up on the screen, but this picture was sold in the garage sale by mistake by the son when mum and dad were out the back. <laughs> Someone had come in, they'd seen the picture, and he'd thought, um, $200. And he thought he was getting a good bargain. And so the person purchased it, paid with cash, and off they went. It was later in the day the parents discovered that their picture worth $30,000 was no longer there, and the son proudly said, yeah, I sold it for $200. With no knowledge at all of the true value of the masterpiece, he handed it over. Now, later on, the person was tracked down and were happy to get their money back, and the, the, the picture was restored to the family. The difference between Judas and the son in this story is that Judas fully knows the value of Christ and yet still willingly trades him for a small pile of coins. You see, Judas had witnessed the miracles. He had heard all the teaching publicly outside, and he'd had the inner secret teaching for the disciples as well, special teaching, I should say. Judas had shared the ministry. He'd cast out demons. He'd seen people enter the kingdom of God in the words of Christ. Yet his heart had not accepted Christ accepted Christ himself. This story of Judas should cause every one of us to tremble in humility and drive us to ensure that with all the knowledge in our minds, all the coming to church, all the talking about church, all the acts of service, that amongst all of that, we are confident that we are trusting Jesus and are depending on him. It's called faith. This story of Judas should should drive us all to tremble in humility, but not despair, because when you are confidently trusting in Christ, the great blessing of of the gospel is that God gives us the Holy Spirit who secures our hearts, to guard our hearts. And that's what Judas was missing. We'll come back to that story and that picture of Judas' heart in a moment, but now Mark keeps things moving along as he ever does. Judas doesn't need to wait all that long for the opportunity to betray Jesus, and we're now into the last night. We pick up the story from verse 12, and what we have left 12 down to 26 is the story of this last dinner, but broken into three little scenes. Let's just go through those scenes. The first scene is the scene of preparation, verses 12 down to 16. The thing Mark wants you to see in the preparation scene is that this meal coincides exactly with Passover. They're now coming together. The timing is coming together. Uh, Mark does not want you to miss it, so he, he puts it in there twice for you. On uh, Verse 12, on the first day of the week, customary to sacrifice the Passover lamb. Uh, the disciples ask, where do you want us to make preparations to eat the Passover? Mark does not want you to miss the timing of this last meal. And Mark does not want you to miss it because the timing of it makes a complete fall out of all of the religious leaders who had been trying to avoid this night and the days that come. Precisely when they did not want to kill Jesus, their evil plan is not in control. Jesus is still in control even of the timing of his betrayal and death. 
See the details there, the man carrying the jar of water, a large upper room already furnished, already prepared, vacant. It's all waiting. Jesus is quietly in control. And the note that the disciples, they find it just as Jesus told them. Jesus quietly in control of all of this. But the timing of the Passover and this last meal serves another purpose and perhaps even a bigger purpose because that ancient meal will provide the explanation for Jesus' death as well. But we'll come back to in a moment. Come back to that in a moment. The, the middle scene, now we're at the dinner itself. So that's all the preparation. Middle scene, we're at the dinner, verse 17 down. They're reclining at the table, Jesus and the disciples. They're ready to eat. And now Jesus drops the bombshell. Straight out of the gate, Jesus says to his friends, verse 18, I tell you the truth, one of you will betray me. Jesus must have lost his copy of dinner party etiquette. And don't talk about politics or religion. Probably point three, don't talk about personal betrayal. But there it is, straight out. And what's emphasised in this next little bit is the intimacy of the betrayal. There's a couple of phrases there. One who is eating with me. One of the twelve, verse 20. One who dipped bread in the bowl, verse 20. All heightening the intimacy of the betrayal. The reader knows it's Judas, but the others don't know it's Judas yet. And so you can feel the tension in the room is rising. They're saddened. One by one denying, surely not I, surely not I. Little do they know that Judas is there among them. And he already has deception in his heart and he's already hatched a plan in his mind. Now, once again, it's worth coming over to John's Gospel just to provide just a little extra detail that really helps here. Jesus answered, It is the one to whom I give this piece of bread when I dipped it in the dish. Then, dipping the piece of bread, he gave it to Judas Iscariot, son of Simon. As soon as Judas took the bread, Satan entered into him. What you are about to do, do quickly. The leaders are looking for a sly way to kill Jesus. Judas has a deceptive plan, but Jesus completely blows Judas' cover. It shows once again, we've said this many times, Judas is not in control. The leaders are not in control. Jesus is in control of this moment and even the outcome. Uh, back into Mark, look at verse 21, because you get both sides of the betrayal. 21 is a key, key verse in this section. Jesus said, The Son of Man will go just as it's written about him, but woe to that man who betrays the Son of Man. It would be better for him if he'd not been born. Here are the two sides to the one event. On the one hand, God is in charge. That's the first part of verse 21. All of this is part of God's plan. It's been written about. That's in the Old Testament. But even though it's part of God's plan, that does not mean Judas automatically becomes this unthinking and unaccountable pawn in God's plan. He is still responsible for his decision and will be accountable to God for his actions. Evil is in the heart of man, yet God brings good out of evil. Now what a comfort this is for Christians to know that when the world does its worst against God and God's people, two things. God will hold evil accountable. Secondly, God can use evil for good. 
when the world does its worst against God and God's people, God is still in control. The tension sort of is still there, but things move on now. There's the last scene in the story, verse 22 down. This is the last part of the meal. Different Gospels add in other bits of the conversation, but here we are now to the climax of the meal. Jesus gives his disciples two symbols, two visual illustrations, two object lessons to help them understand what's coming in the next day or so. First he takes the bread, breaks the bread, gives it to them and says, take it, eat it, this is my body. And then pouring out the wine, they all drink of the wine and he says, this wine, this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many. The bread and the wine really are not two separate lessons, they're one illustration of Jesus' own body. His body and blood, it's a picture of his death, a death where he will be poured out for the many. And now the Passover background starts to kick in and unlock for us the meaning of Jesus' death. It's at the Passover where the Jewish nation are reminded of being delivered from Egypt. And Jesus' death would bring far greater redemption and deliverance from the curse of sin. It's at the Passover that the Jewish nations remember the death of the innocent lamb died for each family. And now they are to remember Jesus' innocent death hanging on the cross as the new Passover lamb. It's at the Passover that the Jewish nation were reminded that the sprinkling of the lamb's blood on the door kept them safe from the angel of death. And so they are to learn that the sprinkling of the blood of Jesus provides forgiveness and keeps people safe from the wrath of God to come. It's at the Passover when the Jewish nation were to remember that if they wanted to be safe, they had to, really, they had to actually eat the lamb and stay sheltered under the blood of the lamb. It points to the truth that none of us are safe. No one is safe unless we feed on Christ by faith and shelter under his blood. So right in this very season when the mind of Israel has been directed to God's great rescue in Egypt, Jesus quietly, quietly in this upper room at first is pointing the direction to himself as the true Lamb of God and the true purpose of his death. That first Bible reading we had explains it in terms of a covenant, a new way of God relating to his people. No longer that covenant that was there given when they escaped Egypt is in play, a covenant of the stone tablets that Israel broke anyway. Here is the new covenant that's established in the blood of the perfect Son of God and brings about forgiveness of sins and God's word written internally on our hearts. Now shortly we're going to share the Lord's Supper here in church. We do it every month or so. When we do and share the Lord's Supper here, we also are remembering that Jesus is our Passover lamb. This meal was not only, these symbols were not only for those in the room that night. Jesus said that all Christians are to use these symbols as a way of remembering his death and what it meant. The difference, of course, is that when we celebrate the Lord's Supper, we're doing it on this side of Jesus' death and resurrection. So the bread and the wine in our remembrance take on a far richer and deeper meaning for us than what the disciples possibly could have grasped in the room that night. 
There's been so much confusion throughout history about the practice of the Lord's Supper in church. But the concept is really quite simple. The aim of celebrating the Lord's Supper is to remind us of Jesus' sacrificial death on the cross. We're to remember how desperate our situation is. When we think of the bread broken and the wine poured out, we are remembering the death of Christ and thinking, if that's what it took to rescue me, that's the desperate situation that I've been saved from. When we break the bread and pour out the wine, it's a reminder that Jesus' body was broken and poured out to death. And then when we eat it, we don't just look at it or watch it as a demo up the front, we eat it. It's a remembrance that we need to feed on Christ by faith. We actually have to participate in this. The way we participate all through the New Testament is through faith. Faith is the great way a human soul connects to Christ. It's the only way a human soul connects to Christ, through faith. That's confident trust. So when we come to celebrate the Lord's Supper, faith is not planted by the Lord's Supper. Faith is not put in place as though it wasn't there before. But uh, the Lord's Supper can strengthen the faith that is there in Christ through remembering what the symbols are pointing to. They become a visible sign to strengthen our faith. J.C. Ryle is a great... Um, Anglican bishop in the 1800s in Liverpool in England. He puts it this way. And looking at that picture, I'm realising why I can myself never become a great theologian because I just can't muster a beard like that. But um, here are his words. And what we're looking for is the connection between faith and what actually takes place at the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper is not a converting or justifying ordinance. Those who are unconverted or or unjustified will go away no better than when they came, but rather worse. It is to sustain life, not to impart it, to strengthen and increase grace, but not to give it, to help faith grow, but not to sow or plant it. And so shortly when we'll put the invitation out for members here of our church family to share in the Lord's Supper, it's for those who are trusting in Christ. And for those who don't trust in in Christ, doing this won't automatically put in place, put that in place. But for those who do trust in Christ, come and remember. And for those who don't, then you can use this time and watch the symbol to think and to reflect and consider where you are up to in your understanding and trust of Christ. When we share the Lord's Supper, we are to draw near with humility and soon I'll pray a prayer of humility coming to the Lord's Supper. We eat and drink with thankfulness for the mercy that is being given to us. And when we leave the Lord's Supper, we do so with confidence and hopefulness because this Jesus has finished his work on the cross and the resurrection is a powerful announcement to the world that he lives as the living Son of God. The king must die. Now that's what the religious leaders thought, but it was also God's plan. The leaders thought they were putting an end to the kingdom of Christ, but they were really helping to establish it. It was their actions to kill him that made Christ really and truly glorious. The death of Jesus is brought about by the sins of people, but it's also in substitution for the sins of people. And far from 
God's purpose is being thwarted by the evil Judas. Judas is a vital instrument in God's purposes being fulfilled. Now, one last little picture to show you. Here is a picture of a young girl who died in 1996, age 10, Amber Hangerman. She was kidnapped and awfully killed. But in 1996, in the aftermath of her death, her family worked very closely with the police to develop a system of emergency alerts so that when a child was abducted or kidnapped, the whole community could be notified very, very quickly. And they developed this system of text messaging, much like our bushfire alerts, social media, news going out across the radio, very, very quickly. They are now called Amber Alerts. And countries all around Europe, including the United States, we use them here in Australia, Amber Alerts. We were in holidays in the US a few years ago, and our phone would buzz with an Amber Alert, a child nearby had been abducted. These Amber Alerts, since they started, have saved thousands of children, and they've been rescued in the act of being kidnapping. What an awful tragedy to lose Amber Hangerton, age 10. Yet through her death, many, 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 many others have been saved. The difference, of course, with Jesus is that it was all planned. And he died knowing what his death would achieve. A rescue from the most awful clutches of sin and God's judgment. So today we've seen Mary treasure Jesus. We've seen Judas trade Jesus. We've seen the disciples participate through eating that meal. How will you respond? I'm going to give you a moment of time just to reflect because we are going to move right into sharing the Lord's Supper together. And during a time of silence, why don't you think about the passage and maybe consider where you are up to with your knowledge and understanding and trust in Christ. You might want to pray a personal prayer to him and then I'll lead us in sharing the Lord's Supper together. I'll give you a moment or two to respond.